As a pastor and as one who likes to connect with people and help them and understand them, usually there's, or sometimes there are these little bits of news or information that kind of stick out to me that I think reveal a lot of the values, hopes, or even concerns that human beings in today's world have. And it was just in the last couple of weeks I stumbled across this stat that really blew my mind. So um, as, as I'm preaching this, this weekend is kind of the opening weekend for the new you know, Avengers movie. And all the big news is how much money it's bringing in, how many hundreds of millions of dollars other movies have brought in. The movie industry is huge, huge. But there's actually another industry that makes that one look small by comparison. I stumbled across these stats. The video gaming industry, worldwide, there were, in 2018, there were 2.5 billion people who together spent a total of $135 billion on video games. This doesn't just dwarf the movie industry, this dwarfs the movie industry and the music industry combined. Video game has exponentially grown the the amount that people spend on it. And quite quite honestly, when you look at what people spend their money on, that tells you a lot about what's going on behind the scenes. Now, this includes all sorts of video games from the uh, video games on your phone, which actually makes up the bulk of this number of 135 billion. Most of them are, are apps or games on your phone. It also includes PlayStation and Xbox and those things. It even includes computer games. Like on an actual computer, remember like Oregon Trail? Except, did, any, did anyone ever pay for Oregon Trail? I don't know if anyone paid for it, but we all paid for it if you played it. There's, there's all these different games, and right now you just look at the video game industry, it is so far growing, growing, growing. And, and so I thought as a pastor, like, what does this tell me about human beings in today's world? Number one, yeah, we have a lot of money. But second of all, what is it about video games that just attracts so many people, attracts so many people? And I'm sure you could do brain scans and talk to, you know, smart medical people, and they can tell you all the chemicals that are going on when we play video games. But I'm a more simple man myself. So I asked the question, why do we want to play video games? What's the lure? And I kind of put it down to two things. Number one, when you play video games, you get to be the hero. You are the one who saves the day. Yes, there are obstacles. And yes, your environment is working against you sometimes. And yes, there are certain weaknesses to your character. But you are in an environment and in a place virtually where you get to be the hero. And along with being the hero, you get to be in control. So much so that some games even have cheat codes embedded into them. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A, B-A. Select start. You got it. I probably got that wrong, by the way, didn't I? Up, down, up. I can't remember. I'm on, on. anyway. If you know video games, you know that with certain ones, there are certain cheat codes where you can even control your environment even more. And the big lesson for us is this. The, the reason video games have their allure is because you get to set the pace. You get to watch yourself rise up and be the hero that saves the princess. Why she keeps going into castles filled with lava, I don't know. But you get to save the princess. You get to be the hero of the day. And at the end of it, you have control about what happens. Except for Oregon Trail. That's the only, only difference. But as it turns out, this is the recipe for the most popular games out there and the ones that make the most money, with one exception that I found. 
back in 2016, there was actually a video game that defied these rules. The game was called That Dragon Cancer. And it was written by a husband and wife team. It's a big team, but these two were the main ones behind the story and behind what this video game was about. Their names were Ryan and Amy Green. And in a nutshell, the reason they designed this game called That Dragon Cancer, which you can find on the App Store to this day, the reason why they made it was to tell the story of their four-year-old son named Joel. Since the time he was one, he had cancer. And by the time he was four, it was taking a really bad turn. And this story was their way to kind of go through the grieving process in a way that only a game designer, designer could, could go through it. But they designed this game to tell the story of what it was like for them to guide their four-year-old through all these cancer treatments. And here's why this game is different. You see, most games, you get to be the hero. Most games, you get to be in control. But this game was different. No matter what choices you made, no matter which person in the story you were controlling, no matter which treatments you wanted Joel to get, the story always ends, the game always ends the same way. Cancer wins. And the closing scene is where you see Joel at the front of a church. This is the one game that actually mirrors real life. What they taught you in this game is that you aren't the hero. I misspelled ain't. I went to say ain't. You ain't the hero. You aren't the hero. And they also told you and taught you in this game, you don't have control. This game is actually one that mirrors real life. And by the way, this game sold so many copies and it won awards, even though it defied the rules. This is the world we live in. You are not the hero. You do not have control. You are not the hero. In fact, one, the, one of the psalmists put it this way. He said, our life is like we're walking through a valley of the shadow of death. No matter what accomplishments or achievements we have, no matter how victorious we might be or how great we might look, we all live in the shadow of death. And that is a dragon that nobody can defeat. One of the things I, I liked about this game, I didn't actually play it. I kind of saw some YouTube footage. Uh, one of the things I liked about the game, That Dragon Cancer, is that it kind of gives you an inside look into what this husband and wife were feeling throughout this process as they were trying to find treatment for their, for their son. And at one point, the, the, the wife, as they're still trying to navigate the treatments, you can hear her saying to her husband, I believe our son will live. She says, I know in my heart that this will be a miracle story and that years from now we'll look back at this moment and tell people around us, see, I told you so. God showed up and God provided a miracle. And then she, she's talking to her husband. She said, I know this, but it doesn't seem like you do. To which he replied, I don't know. I hope our son will live. I hope there's the miracle but I don't know. We live in a world, we have these lives where hopes can let us down. 
to the point where we begin to condition ourselves, whether it's someone you love who's going through medical issues or whether it's financial things, you might set your hopes only to have them destroyed. And so we learn really quickly in our world and in our lives to set the bar low when it comes to what we're hoping for. I hope for the best, but I, I don't hope very much. This is what we learn from life under the sun. Number one, people whose hopes are let down learn to lower their hopes in the future to the point where you give a person enough time in this world, you give them the right circumstances around them, and they can lose their hope. And when someone loses their hope, you can destroy them. Their life is empty. But this is the world we have. Everything we live in is under the shadow of death. So what do we do with this? What kind of a world could give us hope? I want to start today by asking the question, what if there is actually a greater hope? Not the kind of hope that you have to adjust based on circumstances. Not a kind of hope where you have to lower it so that you aren't destroyed by it. What if there's a different, a greater kind of hope? And this is a hope that we're going to explore throughout this series. Because here's what happened. After Jesus rose from the dead, he strategically met with, personally, he connected with and met with individuals for about 40 days after he was raised from the dead. Sometimes it was just one-on-one. Sometimes it was one-on-two. Sometimes it was even a groups of 500 people all at once. And here's the thing. Even though all the different interactions were, were varied, you know, the way he talked to Peter was different than the way he talked to a couple guys on the road to Emmaus. And the, the, the interactions were different, but in every single one of them, Jesus gave this incredible gift of not just hope, but he gave this gift of what some of the apostles would later describe as a living hope, a different, greater version of what we all need to live. And what I love about our series is this. As we start out today, we're actually going to, to see the very first person that the scriptures say Jesus appeared to. Almost an unlikely person, but as he appears to them, he's going to challenge her her as he's going to challenge you today to think about how you gauge your hope. You're probably asking a question that needs to be realigned and refocused. And to get into this, we're going to see how Jesus appeared to this woman named Mary Magdalene on Easter day, not long after dawn. Now, you do, the good thing is you don't need to know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene for this section to take place. We're going to look at uh, John chapter 20. You don't need to know a whole lot about her. You just need to know that her life was transformed because of Jesus, supernaturally transformed. And she was not just a follower of Jesus. She was a raving fan. She loved him. She followed him. She would do anything for him. And as we pick up where, where we're going to uh, jump into the story, what had just happened was that she loved him the only way she could after he died. Her only hope after Jesus died was to give him a proper burial because they had to get him in the tomb so quickly on Friday night. They had to get him in there before the Sabbath day started. 
And they just rushed him and said, let's just get the body put away. We'll deal with the proper burial later. And when Mary woke up Sunday morning, she said, finally, now is our time to give Jesus a proper burial. All she hoped for was to honor him in his death. Now, as we jump into the story, we're going to see that uh, she had just told Peter and John that, hey, the tomb was empty. They came and checked it out. They were kind of scratching their heads, and then they left. They went back home to, you know, try to figure these things out. And now, as, as these two men leave the tomb, Mary stays at the tomb. She's kind of lingering around, and this is what she did. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Now, crying, we know, uh, first of all, two things quick— when someone cries, it's because they're, they're sad. Yeah, write that down in your notes. People cry because they're sad. Mary was sad, so she was crying because of that. But culturally speaking, there's another layer to this that we don't really get according to our culture. When we cry, we go off into a small room. We, we hide our tears. We don't want people to see us crying. You know, it's kind of our defense mechanism. In their culture, it was actually expected that if you're sad about something, if you're mourning something, you cry publicly. And not just a whimper of a cry, but you make it loud and known so that when people see you, they know something is wrong. The Greek word that John used here to describe her crying is also used to describe the ritual kind of mourning or wailing that would often happen accompanying someone's death or something very bad. So maybe she's, she's making a point of this not just whimpering to herself, but publicly crying so that anyone who happens to be in the area might take notice and maybe have pity on this woman. And it's not just that she's crying, but then she also bends down into the tomb. So her crying is also connected with this visual of what is wrong, and her crying was directed at this tomb. Something was wrong. There should have been a body there, but she wasn't finding it. So all this commotion, she's trying to get the attention of maybe some, some people nearby who could give her some sort of a clue about what was happening. But she did not get the attention of men. Here's what happened. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. When she came to that tomb, she was hoping to give Jesus a proper burial. And because of that hope, pay attention to this, she was expecting to see two Roman guards guarding an occupied tomb. She was not expecting to see two angels guarding an empty one. But there they were, placed there by God, because she needed to ask a question about the hope that she had. And so like God often does when we're kind of in these moments of wandering, he doesn't jump in and say, Mary, here's what you need to know. But when God intervenes, it is through a question. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And the answer should be obvious. I mean, empty tomb. I was hoping to give him a proper burial. And, and that, that's why I'm here. And now I can't. And so I need someone to help me. What is going on here? She was confused. And, and so they asked her, no, no, no. Why are you crying? We know the circumstances. We're sitting here where his body used to be. Why are you crying? And in her mind, she must have been thinking this. Well, was it too much to hope for a proper burial? 
Is that too much, God, that not only would your son die a criminal's death like he doesn't deserve, but now we can't even give him a proper burial? Was it too much to hope that I could honor him in his death? Apparently, God, that was too much. And here's where your story intersects with Mary's. Here's where her hope is also modeled in the hope that you and I naturally drift into. We ask the question, Was it too much to hope for? Only our question is obviously different. Was it too much to hope for a normal life? Maybe some of you have circumstances in life, whether medical issues or financial issues or education issues or family issues, and and sometimes you just lie in your bed at night and you say, God, was it just too much to hope for a normal life like everyone else? Why do I have to live like this? Was it too much to hope for? We asked the question, was it too much to hope for healing? I, I know some of us in the room, we have loved ones who, for various reasons, I think we could all raise our hands, actually. People we love who've been hit by things too severe and too young. Was it too much to ask a loving Father in heaven to give healing? Was that too much to hope for? Or we ask the question maybe, was it too much to hope for some kind of a sign where, you know, God, I did not know which way to go and it was, seemed to me like a bad and a bad or maybe a good and a good, but I didn't know which way to go. Was it too much just to ask for a little divine nudge in the right direction? Was it too much to hope for? That's the question we normally come back to when our hopes are challenged, or especially when our hopes are ruined. We ask the question, was it too much to hope for? So I just want to answer your question right out. Nothing you hope for is too much for God. And that should lead us to then ask another question. If he truly can do anything we hope for, whether it's the miracles, the healings, whatever it is, if he can, then why doesn't he? And what happens next for Mary kind of guides her in this thing because what we're going to find out as, as Jesus is now going to actually appear to Mary, he's going to challenge the kind of hopes that she's been having. And we know this. We look at Mary and we say, what a foolish thing she hoped for. She was hoping for a burial, but now instead she's going to find that Jesus is alive. That was kind of foolish to hope for. But before you point the finger at her, what if you've been hoping for the wrong thing too? What if we've been asking the wrong question when it comes to hope? What if, is it too much to hope for, is the wrong question to ask? Jesus is going to guide Mary to a different question, and he's going to challenge you to think about the hopes that you've had too. He goes on, so she, she, she t- turns to the angels who ask her, why are you crying? And she says, well, here, here they go. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And if you were able to go back and say, Mary, who's the they? She would say, I have no idea. All I know it was, a, it was more than one person because they had to roll that uh, tomb away, roll the stone away, and it takes more than one to carry a body these days, especially the way that Jesus was crucified. So whoever they is, they took him. And I had only hoped to give him a proper burial. But apparently, that was too much to hope for. No, it wasn't too much to hope for. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus 
standing there. Tada! Except there was no tada because she did not realize that it was Jesus. Maybe it was the tears in her eyes. Maybe it was the sun was not quite high enough yet. Maybe it was just a cultural thing where women don't really stare at men in the face. And so she kind of acknowledged his presence. Maybe it was a miracle that Jesus hid his, his true identity from her. We don't know. But we know that she saw Jesus and that she did not realize it was him. And now, again, when God goes to people whose hopes are off, God doesn't just come in and give you the solution. So often, God responds with a question. Something that was similar to what the angels asked. Jesus asked her woman, a term of endearment, not like woman, but dear woman, why are you crying Who is it that you're looking for? I can see there's an empty tomb. I can see you're upset. Who is it that you're looking for? I love the way that the um, NASB version puts this. It says, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I see you're upset at somebody's absence. Who are you looking for? And in that moment, she had to come to grips with the situation around her. Okay. I was just hoping for a proper burial. Apparently that's too much. Now there's this crazy guy asking me questions. And so she's trying to make sense of this all. And maybe here's the takeaway for you. When you hope for something that isn't in line with what you should hope for, a lot of times you can't see the circumstances as you should see them. Mary is completely lost in this moment, and she's trying to make sense of it. In fact, she looks at Jesus, and she's, the thing she can best come up with is she, maybe he's the gardener. Who else would be there that early on a Sunday morning? Maybe it's the gardener. So thinking he was the gardener, she, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Completely unreasonable. One woman can't go and take the body of a grown man and move it around. One woman couldn't do that. For most cases, one man couldn't even do that. What she said was unreasonable, but when your hopes are not where they should be, you're not always reasonable. And she's going through this, and here's the interesting thing. She saw Jesus as someone he wasn't, and so she asked him a question that wasn't the right question. She asked him where the body was, and Jesus knew something much greater than what she asked. Jesus turned to her and he said, Mary. This gardener didn't know where her body was. This gardener knew her name. It was in that moment she realized, wait a minute. Empty tomb. Strange guy. Knows my name. What if? It's her, her, John doesn't describe all the details. He has to get to the point and just, you know, he, he has limited paper to work with. But just picture what Mary is doing in that moment when she realizes that the one she hoped to give a proper burial for was now alive. There was something better she could have been hoping for. And because of that, she almost missed it. She turned toward him after she realized this. She turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic. And I love this little detail because it tells us just how raw and genuine. She wasn't thinking about a response. She just claimed in, her, in the language that was common between her and Jesus, Rabboni, which means teacher. She acknowledged who he was. And then in that moment, she had to come to grips with something that you and I need to pause and come to grips with also. She realized in that moment that it was too little for her to hope 
for a proper burial. It wasn't too much to hope for. It was too little. She was hoping for a burial, but God had something greater in mind. But as long as her hopes were tied to that lesser thing, she was going to be disappointed and let down. What have you been hoping for? And is what you've been hoping for too little to hope for? Maybe the thing you've been hoping for sounds good in your world and it makes sense in whatever area of life you're addressing, whether it's medical or financial or relational, whatever it might be. You might have your hope, but what if God has a bigger hope? You will only be disappointed as long as you hold onto that little hope. So here's the thing. Is anything too big for God? Is anything too big to hope for? Absolutely not. God can do anything. But number three, some things you hope for can be too little for God to the point where he cannot give you the thing you hope for because he has something greater that he wants to give you. And as long as we can only see things according to our worldview of our hope, whether it's a miracle healing, whether it's a financial breakthrough, we might be limiting what God ultimately has in mind. And so in this, this last part here, Jesus has to, again, realign Mary because even she, in this moment, she's a little bit stuck as to what the hope really is. She had hoped for a burial, but now she's facing the realization that Jesus is alive. And so now her hope is shifted to a more temporary thing. Jesus, stay with me. But Jesus said, do not hold on to me. I know you just want to hold on to me and just enjoy the moment and you want to keep on living life the way we've been living life, but, but there's something even greater that I came to do. And it's, as much as I love hanging out with you and the 11 stinky disciples, as much as I love that, there's a greater hope, a living hope to which I want to call you. Do not hold on to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. We'll talk about that later in the series. Go instead to, get this, my brothers. He's not talking about James. What Mary does next reveals to us, Jesus was referring to his 11 disciples. My brothers, go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and to your God. As Ben put it last week in Easter, the story of Jesus is your story. The resurrection of Jesus is your resurrection. And as Jesus is talking to Mary and telling her instructions, he says, look, I didn't just come back to life to be alive. I came back to life to give you life, to give you purpose and hope that this world could never give you. And so Mary Magdalene, she went to the disciples and she went with the news, I have seen the Lord. And they're like, great, you found his body, so what? No, I've seen the Lord. And then she told them all that he had said, these, all, that, all, the, all the things that he had said to her. He went through, she went through and said, this is what he told me. And this is what he said is still to come. And so in this process, Mary Magdalene was challenged by Jesus himself to think about hope in a different way in a way that I believe that all of us would benefit from also thinking about differently. So often when our hopes get bashed or get taken away from us, what we learn is to lower our hopes for the next time. But what Jesus did on Easter dawn was that he pointed people to a hope that rises. 
a hope that defies the circumstances of the life we live in, a hope that changes you from living under the shadow of death to living with the certainty of life. It's Easter dawn that hope began to rise. And the question I want you to think about this week is, what have you been hoping for? And as your hopes were maybe dashed in the past, did you approach it and say, well, was I hoping for too much, God? I want you to change that question and ask, was I hoping for too little? And what we see on Easter dawn with hope rising is this, that your hope was raised to a resurrection level. Your hope supersedes this life and this world. And the hope that Jesus gave to Mary on that day was a hope that superseded the circumstances. And the hope that we're going to see Jesus give to others, to his disciples, to crowds in these next uh, few weeks in the series, we're going to see him give a kind of hope that doesn't settle with lowering it to reasonable expectations. You will see a hope that rises just as Jesus rose on Easter day. What if you've been hoping for too little? Come back next week as we look at how Jesus continues to challenge people and give them peace and comfort in the kind of living hope that he alone could give.